You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, where we unpack what is new and innovative in education. I'm your host, Jessica, and today we're listening into a discussion around reprogramming the American dream. Greg Shaw is a writer from Bellevue, Washington. He has supported the policy and communication needs of Microsoft and the Gates Foundation for more than 25 years. Three years ago, Shaw worked with Sasha Nadella on Hit Refresh, his book on the remaking of Microsoft as a leader in cloud computing and artificial intelligence. For the last two years, Shaw has been working with Kevin Scott on a new book, Reprogramming the American Dream from Rural America to Silicon Valley, Making AI Serve Us All. Greg joins us today to discuss the challenges of producing beneficial AI that serves society equitably, including rural America. Let's listen in to his recent conversation with Tom. Hey, Greg Shaw, welcome back to the Getting Smart Podcast. Hey, thanks for having me back, Tom. It's always good to talk with you. It is, and you're you're pretty close by. Uh, are you in Bellevue today? I am in uh, Bellevue, in the Clyde Hill neighborhood of, of Bellevue, uh, sitting in a daylight rambler uh, uh, with a nice collared shirt on top and pajama bottoms on, on the bottom. <laughs> I, I did the same thing. I have, a, I have a nice shirt on, and I have my Lululemon running pants on. <laughs> yeah. I uh, intend to hit the, hit the beach as soon as, uh, as, soon as we finish. That's yeah. sort of the new, the new outfit, I think. Yeah. Um, what? What's your life like uh, d- during COVID? What what do you think about this crazy pandemic we're living through? Well, you know, you and I come from uh, you know our time at Gates Foundation, and you you know in in school systems. So, I, I, frankly, I feel pretty fortunate. I mean, I, uh, I I sit in a comfortable house. I have food. I'm not ill. Uh, so I. You know, I, I think of um, I think of the great advantages that I have compared. You know, I've got a niece who's working uh, as a nurse at Mass General, and I, I worry about her. Um, so you know, it's uh, uh, we're doing the right thing by staying home. Um, uh, I've started uh, I've started writing poetry. Uh, so, you know, in addition to my, my day job, I'm finding some things that I really enjoy doing and, right. and, uh, yeah, so, uh, I, I don't, I don't want to have a rosy answer to, to your question, but frankly, yeah, uh, but it, it's, yeah. I mean, one of the, this is a really paradoxical time where for many of us we are sort of going about our business as we normally would, uh, you and I spend a lot of time writing and we can do that anywhere and and then we we all have relatives um that are dramatically affected uh either losing their uh their jobs or working under really um dangerous uh situations so it's just um it's a really strange time and i I guess i just want uh i want to acknowledge that at the at the outset and we're going to talk about the rise of uh of, of artificial intelligence today and at the end, I think we'll we'll come back and talk about some of the the, the parallels with um, the the time that we're living. But I called because uh, you just released uh, a great new book. It's called uh, "Reprogramming the American Dream: From Rural America to Silicon Valley: Making AI Serve Us All." So I I was immediately drawn to a great title. Um, and I, I, I have so appreciated your work as a writer for the last 
uh, 30 years. I knew this was going to be a, a terrific book. Um, I, I think we ought to dive in by talking about Kevin Scott. Who's who's Kevin? Yeah. Kevin Scott is the uh, he's the CTO, the Ch- chief technology officer for Microsoft. Uh, I immediately took to him. Uh, he came to Microsoft in the acquisition that Microsoft had of, of LinkedIn, the merger of the two companies. Kevin had right. been the head of engineering at LinkedIn. I really took to him because uh, he, he has a Southern accent and he has the warmth of a, of a Southerner. And as you know, I grew up in uh, the Red River Valley of Texas and Oklahoma. And uh, I, I do have some nostalgia for, uh, for the South and, we got to, you know, we got to talking. I had just finished the Satya Nadella book, Hit Refresh, and he had the idea of a, of a book that he wanted to do uh, about AI. And the more we talked about it, he's from rural central Virginia, right, very close to the North Carolina border. And, you know, we got to thinking about our family and friends um, and, you know, their general lack of understanding of sort of where uh, data and compute power and artificial intelligence and things like quantum and uh, virtual reality or um, mixed reality is going. And so we decided to write a book together that was focused uh, not on Silicon Valley or New York or Seattle, but on places that we knew from, from growing up. So that was the origin of the book. And uh, so I appreciated that you, you added a little bit more about Kevin's uh, backstory, because that, that really is, a, there's a, a lot of that in the first half of the book. Um, what, say a little bit more about why you think that's important, why why for him it was important to, to tell his story. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, 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 think it's a, I think it's a couple of things. Um, you know, I, the... the he he begins the book, uh, and I'm I'm co-author, so I I work with him on it. But he, you know, we sort of talk about you know storytelling is kind of a, a southern thing. You sit on the porch and you tell stories, and the story that's being told of AI is not really the story that he thinks uh, is the the story that that you know that should be uh, that should be uh, uh, adopted you know it's on the one hand it's a story of hey ai is gonna decimate everything put everybody out of out of work uh, on the one hand on the other hand uh, we're gonna create artificial intelligence that just allows us to go sit on the beach and not have to do anything but still enjoy you know the, the fruits of capitalism and the truth is is neither of those things um, you know, uh, the book is not political. It's uh, it's a it's a technological book, but uh, the foreword is written by J.D. Vance, who wrote *Hillbilly Elegy*, which came out in 2017, and became a little bit of uh, uh, you know, the, the 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 term empathy. You know, like really kind of came out of that book, like explaining Trump voters and you know, sort of some of these rural and Rust Belt voters who, who were fed up. And J.D.'s book is, is very different, but we do share the, the idea that these are, these are also disenfranchised communities. And, uh, and so what is the story that, 
that they should be hearing and thinking about. So the, the book is really a journey into, you know, his community uh, in, in, in rural central Virginia, looking at some businesses that are run by old high school friends of his, you know, agriculture and healthcare and uh, uh, small manufacturing and, and kind of playing forward. How are they already using technology? Uh, and uh, and what will technology and data and artificial intelligence mean for some of these, uh, uh, you know, non-Silicon Valley startups? I appreciate um, the, the the introduction. Really captures that sense of uh, of paradox. Um, Kevin says there's two prevailing stories about AI for low end. Uh, middle-income workers, this grim tale of uh, increasing job destruction, um, and then this idyllic um, productivity and convenience, uh, as you mentioned, Greg. And and then he, he goes on to say uh, he really wanted to tell a more nuanced, more complicated, more hopeful uh, story. And I, so I, I guess I appreciate the way the book, uh, as honestly and candidly, and in a general audience language, tries to lay out both the, the promise to spill a, a, a bit of the hype, and and but also to lay out some of the real uh, concerns and why it's so important that this has yeah. to uh, be linked to public policy. Yeah, you know, we we agreed at the beginning that we we didn't particularly care uh, how the the digerati, as we call them, you know the you know, the people who write about technology in Silicon Valley in New York, we didn't particularly care what the reviews of this would say. What we really cared about was what would people in our communities say? I, I gave my dad, who's a old oil and gas guy in, in Oklahoma, uh, a, a proof of the book. And he said, you know, I think for the first time I understand um, what AI is and what it would mean in my, you know, in, in my industry. Um, and how it, and how it could be helpful. So that, to me, that review was uh, was far more important than what yeah. uh, you know somebody at Wired magazine might think. I, so I also appreciate the way that you you guys sort of identify the um, the inflection uh, the inflection point. Um, Toby Ord called it a, a precipice in his new book uh, that came out. Last week, you you call it an inflection point when there's there's sort of a, an opportunity for a couple different stories that could happen here. I mean, things could either get dramatically better for a lot of people, or or they could get um, they could get worse. And and so uh, a thesis here is that AI uh, should be on the public agenda, like climate change, like health. Um, and wellness, and particularly uh, pandemics, and uh, public education. Yeah, um, I think that's an interesting conclusion for the CTO of Microsoft to come to. I mean, what what's he really suggesting here? Is that a new legislative regime? In in what ways do you think AI? needs to be in the, the public agenda. There are a number of reasons uh, for them, and I'm, I'm not necessarily saying one is more important than the other, but we wanted to, to, to kind of outline what the, the public impl implications are. You know, on the one hand, you have you know, the, the, 
the incredible force of, of the Chinese economy, you know, they have a very aggressive stated 10-year plan for uh, global leadership in, our, in artificial intelligence. And so, you know, even from a competitive and, and defense perspective, it's, uh, it's clearly a, a priority. Secondly, uh, you know, if AI, you know, some people say, well, it's, you know, data will be the new oil or, you know, it's the fourth industrial revolution. There's all kinds of metaphors about, uh, about what's coming. I think what Kevin and I most wanted to write about is that that, um, that that opportunity is shared equitably. Uh, in other words, there is a scenario where those with the capital to, you know, to fund AI and to, you know, to, uh, uh, to, to realize that is only in the hands of, of a few and it doesn't need right. to be that way. And, and so when we go back to those communities, whether it was in Virginia or Iowa or, uh, uh, Wyoming, we, we ride, you know, or Oregon, we ride about a lot of these different rural areas. We see uh, both the need for and the opportunity for people of every skill level, of every color of, of collar, blue, white, and no collar, uh, to, you know, to, to be able to harness uh, these technologies. And then, uh, you know, the inflection point that, that you talk about is just the um, you know, the confluence that we're seeing now of phenomenal compute power, um, you know, with, uh, in, you know, enormous data centers and, uh, uh, you know, n new approaches to, to chips, uh, uh, more and more data that's being generated and, and reasoned over uh, for AI reasons. If we, you know, you you have a risk of the technology becoming so powerful, and the public understanding and the public's uh, participation in that being so far behind that it that it creates a, a gap. Um, and uh, so, didn't that? I mean, didn't that happen five years ago? I, it feels like we that's already happened, and is that feels like that gap is widening to me. I guess well, that's part of why you guys have a sense of urgency about it. I think what's well, I think what's different now versus five years ago is what uh, people refer to as the democratization of, of AI. There there was yeah. a sense uh, five years ago where kind of like you know uh, in in the dark ages, uh, you know the, the the ability to create a book was was you know was all held in the hands of of a monastery where they could kind of put the, you know, they could sort of publish a, a, the, uh, only a few books. Uh, and the same was true with AI. You know, you sort of had to go to the big companies and on bended knee and ask for an AI application. But um, AI is truly becoming uh, so democratized that uh, uh, any of us, you know, the, 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 the hardware, the, the algorithms uh, are all there. Um, you know, where uh, are you? Are you really describing a, a future with open tools? Yes, absolutely. In, in yeah. another, in the intro, you talk about AI must become a platform that any individual or business can use to enhance their creativity and productivity. So you you envision that as a set of open tools? I I, I absolutely, and, it, and it's already happening. Um, um, and, uh, you know, so we write about uh, these sod farmers in, in central Virginia. They, 
in, in the area where, where Kevin is uh, from, you know, this was an economy largely built around tobacco for, for centuries. And tobacco, of course, went away. They decided to become sod farmers. And, uh, you know, what they have now are GPS, uh, you know, systems that are becoming more, more precise in terms of how they uh uh, cultivate the land. Uh, you know, we have drones now that will fly over a field and look for hot spots. You know, where's is, where's is the moisture not getting to? Where do we see uh, pesticide? You know, where do we see either effects of pesticides or effects of of, of pests? Um, and so, when you really play that out, these are the the Bass Brothers that I'm describing in in rural Central Virginia. Uh, you know, they have the ability now and in fact their son uh one of their sons uh, has gone to study computer science at a nearby university you know he is going to train ai systems on how to survey his father's sod farm and make it more productive um so that's you know that's where ai is going is that uh anyone anywhere will be able to create a a an application that's very narrow and very specific to their need Hey listeners, it's your host, Jessica. I wanted to just take a quick break to share an important resource with you. Recently, our team launched the Getting Through Microsite to support educators, leaders, and families on the path forward during this unprecedented and uncertain time. There's something there for everyone, whether you're just getting started with your transition to distance learning or you've had plans in place for a while and now have the opportunity to share your work and guidance with others. We hope this gives you a place for your voice and an opportunity to learn. We know we will get through this together. Check it out at gettingsmart.com slash getting through. Okay, now back to the show. No, just, uh, I mean, specific to that application, what we're talking about here for folks that might not appreciate AI and a sod farm, um, you know, you can add drone photography that um, powers pinpoint uh, watering and fertilization yep. so that you dramatically cut down on the, the use of water and pesticides. It can change the supply chain. It can yep. change logistics. It can change, um, you know, uh, customer relationships. Um, and, and even the modeling of, of the seed. I mean, it, it, yeah, it, right. So the, the, really the entire supply chain of every industry is, is rapidly being, um, is being altered and, and it, it's producing tremendous benefits, but I, I, I do, uh, I do worry that AI by its nature is, is an aggregating force that, uh, that aggregates, um, benefit and wealth. And it strikes me that, that, that might be the, the most difficult public policy issue that we face, particularly in America, I, I feel like Europe and Europe is always ahead of us on on privacy and um, and these collective uh, policies. Uh, Asia, parts of Asia, are farther ahead of us for for different reasons. But I feel like the United States is going to have a, a particularly difficult time dealing um, with how we share the wealth and benefits that are are created by AI. Yeah. You could say a little more about the ways that you you guys um, tried to grapple with that in the book. Yeah, and again, I'm not, I'm not endorsing uh, uh, you know any of the different ideas that are out there, but but really just trying to 
uh, understand some of the different proposals. I think one of the most interesting one uh, is the notion of data as labor or the data labor movement, as uh, Glenn Weil yeah. and, and Eric Posner have talked about it, uh, which, which is the notion that um, you know AI doesn't just happen. AI learns from people. Uh, AI learns from you and I and our data. And so should, shouldn't we be compensated for that? I mean, if our work is being turned into an asset, you know, if, if uh, my left-handedness can be studied and interpreted and, uh, you know, and then later sold, you know, to car companies or to tool manufacturers or whatever, you know, I taught the machine, I taught the algorithm or I contributed to, to it. And I'm doing that in every facet of my life. Is there an income stream for, uh, you know, for people who are training the machine? Uh, you know, universal basic income is something that has, uh, you know, Andrew Yang, when he was running for president, you know, proposed this. And it, it ends up getting a lot of discussion in, in certain circles. Uh, well, well, Greg, its, it's uh, current topic is some would argue that the the, uh, yeah. the recovery act that right. was just passed is sort of a backdoor to UBI. It is, yeah. I, I, you know, it's interesting you say that. I had thought about that. I haven't read much about it, but I, I agree with you. I, I am super optimistic about the benefits of AI and the efforts that we see to extend those to high school kids. There's an Oakland nonprofit called AI for All. Uh, that's now it, it helped create um, 12 community um, ecosystems where universities are, are helping uh, low-income learners connect with um, the power of machine learning and apply it to local community problems. Uh, there's groups, uh, I'm an advisor to AI for K-12, which is trying to uh, push out a, a set of expectations that every kid should know about AI. So we're we're slowly seeing, you know, the the benefits of machine learning technology um, spread even to high school kids, and I'm excited that increasingly um, young people, even in high school and college, can get involved in putting machine learning to work. So your your notion of AI becoming an open platform, you know, for creativity and pro productivity begin it feels like it's beginning to happen. It's it's beginning to happen, particularly in in urban, more urban areas. You know, our book, Reprogramming the American Dream, is really looking at rural areas where, you know, I, I was saddened to see the the pace uh, of change. Uh, I know that there are bright spots, but I'll, I'll we visited a community in rural Iowa where I talked to some students uh, who you know, who really wanted to be able to take some, even some basic computer science or some basic digital uh, programs in their high school, uh, but it was only offered as, as one course your senior year, which, you know, doesn't set you up for success uh, to apply to a, to, you know, to a, a university to, to study computer science. Uh, in in Wyoming, um, you know, I, I, I talked to, to uh, high school students who, you know, for generations, uh, you know, they they walk across the stage and into uh, a job in oil and gas that pays sixty thousand dollars a year uh, without or it did, or it did uh, a couple weeks ago. 
right? Before <laughs> yeah. the before the oil crash, yeah. Y- yes, yeah. Uh, and and uh, coming from Oklahoma, I can tell you it'll come back. Um, you know, it'll continue to ebb and flow. But and, and yet we and and other we Microsoft and other companies have enormous data centers in places like Wyoming, yeah. uh, where there are needs for people with. Uh, you know, even with some basic digital skills, the ability to, to, to set up and rack uh, uh, servers and, and that sort of thing, but it's not being taught. And, and yet that is a job of the future. It's a job with a lot more upside, um, but, but they have trouble, you know, they have trouble finding uh, people. And then lastly, in, you know, in Virginia, where we have, uh, where we, Microsoft, has the largest um, uh, its largest data center. Uh, you know, I interviewed people there where when the data center opened, they, they, they really could not figure out how to hire local people into that data center because the high school had no digital programs and the community college had really no digital uh, uh, and, and computer science types of programs. So they had to really construct from scratch a, yeah. uh, you know, a system for, uh, you know, if your if your desire was to stay in in that area, and work in in uh, in a data center, you know, you you really had to have an educational system that would support that. Right. And Greg, it, uh, just current events. Uh, I guess I've been struck in the last month that we're not as far along as uh, as I had thought, and it could be because I spend all my time in some of the world's best schools uh, and assumed we were a little farther along in terms of. Uh, one-to-one programs with take-home technology and uh, access to computer science. And I'm afraid this uh, crisis has sort of laid bare the inequities in America, particularly in, in rural schools. Um, and you, you're, you know, the book uh, does a nice job of, of laying that out. Um, I, I guess, do you, are you hopeful that the crisis will help uh, make this more of a priority? Well, I hope so. I mean, the, the added uh, difficulty in rural areas is is not only the skills or the or the access to the technology, but the uh, the broadband. You know, there's quite a uh, right. lack of equity and access to uh, to broadband, and so the idea of a Zoom call or a Teams call is almost impossible for uh, a lot of these students. And so, from a you know healthcare perspective or an education perspective. You know, if you if you're at the end of a of a dirt road someplace, uh, you know, and there's three or four kids uh, sitting at home. Uh, the reports, you know, the the official reports that that come out often show um, broadband being available in in certain areas, but the truth is, it's really not broadband as as we would recognize it. You know, maybe there's one square mile of a rural area that has true broadband, but it but it uh, trickles off uh, quite quickly. Uh, you know, I I am hopeful because um, uh, if if it's possible to be hopeful as a result of this crisis, I think it has brought into stark contrast um, how important uh, you know remote or virtual. I think we'll we'll end up. Uh, losing the word virtual because it will just become the way meetings and the way uh, teaching and things happen. Uh, but it has brought into stark contrast the the inequities uh, that certain communities have. Um, I, I want to 
shift gears and talk a little bit about preventing negative consequences. Um, your book does a, a nice job of uh, laying out the work in front of us to prevent many of the negative consequences. Um, those, the, those include uh, the surveillance state and uh, autonomous weapons and forms of discrimination. Uh, any r- reflections on on those chapters where you you uh, deal with the negative consequences? Some have called for a, a digital Geneva Convention um, to to modernize laws to to, to catch up with. Uh, how fast this technology is is moving. It it does need to be a, a global modernization. You have to harmonize those laws from from country to country, um, uh, and you know the original Geneva Convention did a lot of that, as have other um, regulatory and 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 law conventions. But uh, this notion of a, a digital Geneva Convention that looks across uh, privacy and security and surveillance and uh, warfare and all of those uh, all of those thorny issues uh, is sorely needed. It uh, it certainly is. It, it and it it feels um, you know you've you've spent some time as a public uh, journalist trying to lead community conversations. It feels like. We need a lot more of that, of, of community conversations at, uh, at a local level, but also uh, new ways to have international cooperation around uh, laws so that these things evolve thoughtfully. Uh, yeah. any, any thoughts on the, the local conversation, uh, the, the need for that, and, and the, 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 who, who should be leading those conversations? What topics do you think we should be taking on? Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, I think really in, in every community there is uh, an opportunity for business and academia and and government. Uh, we were talking earlier, you know, faith communities to come together, uh, and you know maybe even doing it in a phased approach where you know you really begin with understanding the technology, understanding. To some degree, how how it works and how it doesn't work, um, you know what's practical today versus what we think might be practical uh, in uh, you know in, in coming years. Take for example, uh, there there there's often a view that you know the the ability for uh, a robot, uh, an AI-enabled robot, to take anyone's job is, you know, is is, is just around the corner. Stanford University has what they call their hundred-year study of of AI, in which they're right. really following on a on a quite sophisticated level. You know, where are we in reaching uh, what's known as artificial general intelligence, when when a computer would be as capable as a human, and they can't you know, they can't see that for, for a hundred years. And in, in, in computer science, a hundred years basically is a proxy for never. Um, you know, will, will we get there? Yes, there continues to be, uh, there continues to be progress, but you know, if, if, if the local conversation were to be about, you know, human level artificial intelligence, it would be kind of a wasted 
discussion. What would be much more useful would be, you know, what's in front of us today? You know, how do we want to deploy, uh, you know, if this is an agricultural uh, community, how do we make sure that we're uh, able to compete with uh, various regions of the world uh, that may be investing more quickly than us in, in AI? Uh, or if this is a textile, you know, area or a manufacturing area, are we, uh, you know, is our education system, is our investment in economic development sufficient to make us competitive? Uh, Greg, this is uh, a great, uh, timely contribution. An another one for you. Um, we appreciate the topic and the, the rural angle makes it really um, unique. Um, I'm, uh, um, do, do you have a sense of what you're going to work on uh, next or um, new thoughts, uh, areas that you're curious about? Well, I'm, uh, there are a couple things that I'm really interested in that I'm working on right now. One is um, uh, a publisher uh, has asked me to look into the role of empathy during this COVID crisis. How, how is leadership and, and business, you know, uh, employing empathy uh, to, uh, you know, to get through this. And so I'm, I'm learning a lot about the, the meaning of empathy and how um, businesses, which you don't always uh, associate the word empathy in business. Um, so kind of uh, learning about that. Um, also working on a book that looks at uh, ecosystems across the country for startups and, and entrepreneurs. You know, we, uh, we typically think of, of those uh, startups as being in Silicon Valley or Seattle or, you know, New York or something like that. Uh, but I've been going around the country, uh, you know, was in Kansas City, as we talked about earlier, Oklahoma City, Tulsa, really learning about these very promising communities that are investing in and making progress on creating an entrepreneurial startup community. That's a, a terrific topic um it's exciting to see that happening in a lot of uh, a lot of cities around the country uh greg as always a uh, pleasure to chat thanks uh, for this new book reprogramming the american dream from rural america to silicon valley making ai serve all of us uh wh where can people find you online greg uh where can you find me? You can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm Gregory M. Shaw on Twitter. Um, so, uh, yeah, let me know what you think uh, when when uh, when folks read it. I'd love to hear from you. And, Tom, as always, really appreciate you having me on. Thanks, Greg. A big thanks to Greg for joining us for today's episode. We appreciate his three decades of service in helping to shape and explain the path forward. His new book will help ensure that rural America isn't a forgotten part of the innovation economy. To learn more about Greg and the book he co-wrote with Sasha, listen to episode 145. We've got it linked in the show notes and on the blog. And of course, before you go, make sure you hit subscribe and leave us a rating. That's it for today, listeners. Thanks for tuning in. For the Getting Smart Podcast, this is Jessica signing off. Jessica signing off.